Well, let me uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to Genesis chapter 13. By the way, this is the last Sunday that we will be in Genesis uh, for a while, probably until about the middle of May. Uh, Starting next Sunday, we will be doing a several-week series on the topic of marriage. And and then when we're done with that series, I'm going to be in Albania uh, for uh, a couple weeks. And then when we get back, uh, we'll be able to get back to our series through the book of Genesis. So this is kind of our last stop in the book of Genesis for uh, at least a couple weeks. Uh, months, and I would encourage you to be here next week and in the weeks to come as we get focused to this most important topic of marriage. But Genesis chapter uh, 13, uh, we're going to be looking at the entirety of this chapter, and if you want to give a title to this chapter, it would be Flourishing and Faith After Failure. Flourishing and Faith After Failure. How many of you have ever failed the Lord and sinned against him before? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, this will narrow it down. How many of you have ever failed the Lord and sinned against him since becoming a Christian? Raise your hand. Oh, no different. Um, If so, and my hand would go up, then this message, our study of Genesis 13 will be a great encouragement to you. Uh, When we studied the second half of Genesis 12, a couple weeks ago, uh, we saw how Abram failed miserably down in Egypt, right? He leaves the promised land during a famine and he goes down to Egypt. And while they're approaching Egypt, Abram tells Sarah to lie and tell people that she was only his sister. Abram's goal was to save his own hide because he was fearful and anxious But also he wanted to profit off the situation should it arise that someone would want to take Sarah as their husband. When Pharaoh himself shows up wanting Sarah, Abram told Pharaoh that she was his sister, thinking that Abram would now have time to negotiate with the Pharaoh and stall for a year or so and get a lot of gifts in the meantime And then get out of Dodge before he actually had to give Sarah away in marriage. But Abram, we saw two weeks ago, got busted and humiliated in his sin. Pharaoh took Sarah right away into his house. God plagues uh, the Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh discovers Abram's deception. Pharaoh rebukes Abram and Abram gets unceremoniously escorted out of Egypt and back to the Negev where he started. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, begins with these words. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Imagine how quiet the camel ride was back from Egypt to the land of promise, how quiet it would have been for Abram and for Sarah. Imagine how her trust in her husband's leadership had been damaged in Egypt. 
But imagine how grateful they both were to be back together again as a result of the gracious faithfulness of God. And this is where our narrative picks up today in chapter 13. But imagine before we look at this chapter, imagine for a moment that you don't know the rest of the story of Abram's life. Your question at this point of the narrative would be, is the Abram that we saw in Egypt, the real Abram? Is that who he really is? Would the real Abram please stand up? In the first half of chapter 12, in the first half of that chapter, we saw Abram trusting God, obeying God's call, worshiping God, building altars, calling on the name of the Lord, and listening to the voice of God as God spoke to him on his journeys. But then in the second half of Genesis chapter 12, we see that Abram turned short-sighted and selfish, forgetful of God's promises, deceptive and scheming. None of us are ever inconsistent like that, are we? But which is the real Abram? We get two versions of Abraham, Abram in Genesis 12. Well, in our passage today, we will see Abram returning after his failure in Egypt to the promised land. We'll see him retracing his former steps and returning to the altar where he had formerly worshiped God. We will see him displaying amazing trust in God in the midst of a situation of conflict. And instead of trying to exploit a situation of conflict for his own advantage, we will literally see Abram handing away all of his advantages to someone who is his inferior and totally trusting God with the results. As one writer says, quote, hardly any other chapter in the Bible portrays the reality of faith so marvelously, unquote, as Genesis chapter 13 does. And this is all the more so because we see such faith in Abram on the other side of his earlier failure in Egypt from chapter 12. If you learn nothing else today, learn this. Just listen to what I'm about to say. If you want to fall asleep after this, that's okay. Just get this. The true measure of a believer is not whether or not he falls, but by what he does on the other side of his failures. If Abram had done what he did in Genesis 12 in the second half of that chapter and then said, I guess this is who I am. I am a deceiving liar at heart, and this is all that I will ever be. Then chapter 13 would have never happened. Chapter 13 will teach you that your failures are not your only measure. It's what you do on the other side of your failures That is your truest measure of who you really are. You know how I know that? I know that because in Proverbs 24, 16, Solomon says, the righteous man never falls. Is that what it says? No, he says the righteous man falls seven times. And rises again. 
he gets back up again. That's exactly what we see Abram doing in our passage today. We see Abram rising again, returning to the Lord, and we see God blessing Abram and lavishing fresh promises upon him, teaching us that there is such a thing as flourishing and faith after failure. The way we're going to break the passage down today is we're going to observe 10 developments, 10 developments in the story of Abram's flourishing and faith after his failure in Egypt. And trust me, we will get through all of these this morning. 10 developments. Development number one, as we just work our way through the chapter, is this. Abram becomes very rich in possessions. Abram becomes very rich in possessions. In verse two, the text says, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Abram is a wealthy man on all counts because God is blessing him just like God promised that he would do back in Genesis chapter 12, verse two, when God said to Abram, I will bless you and make your name great. God is keeping his promise to Abram and no amount of failure on Abram's part can keep God from keeping his promise to Abram. In verse two, we see that as a result of God's blessing, Abram, even after his failure, is, the text says, very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. It's interesting here uh, that the word that is translated rich is the Hebrew word that literally means heavy. Literally, the text reads, Now Abram was very heavy in livestock, in silver, and gold. This makes for an interesting contrast with Abram's situation back in the second half of Genesis chapter 12, where we learn in Genesis 12:10 that the famine that was in the land that Abram was found himself inside of, that the famine was heavy in the land. And it's the same Hebrew word that is used in chapter 12, verse 10, describing the famine. And commentators point out that the word choice is deliberate on Moses's part as he is telling both of these stories. In chapter 12, Abram experiences a heavy famine. And here in chapter 13, Abram is heavy with prosperity. So we can say that in chapter 12, Abram is tested by heavy famine. Here, we will actually see that he is tested by heavy prosperity. Clearly, Moses is wanting us to see these two stories together, to read them together. So Abram, according to the passage, returns to the Negev region, but we will observe that he doesn't want to settle in the Negev. Abram actually wants to get back to Bethel, and this leads us to the second development in the story of Abram's flourishing and faith after his failure in Egypt. And that is that Abram returns to the place of the altar and calls on the name of the Lord. He returns to the place of the altar and calls on the name of Jehovah. In verse 3, we read in the text these words. He went, Abram went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So that we saw that back in 12, chapter 12, where Abram 
was in this very area and had built an altar there. And that's why the text more specifically goes on to say this in verse four, Abram was wanting to go to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. In chapter 12, Abram was between Bethel and Ai, and he built an altar there, and he called upon the name of the Lord there. And here we're now being told that Abram, after his failure in Egypt, specifically wants to return to this altar, to this location where he had earlier called on the name of the Lord in prayer and in worship. Where are you heading? We would ask Abram, and he would say, I'm heading back to the altar. Clearly, Abram is wanting to reconnect with God after his failure in Egypt. And there's something sweet about his confidence in God's amazing grace as he is speeding back to this altar. Abram is confident in coming back to this altar because apparently he knows that God will accept him even after his very public failure in Egypt. Apparently, Abram knows that He knows Jehovah well enough to know that he is a God who receives failures, who receives and accepts sinners. I love what J. Vernon McGee says on this very point. Listen to what he says. Although he, Abram, may stumble and fall, this man comes back to God. There is always a way back to the altar for Abram, the prodigal son, And any man or woman who wants to come back to God, the arms of the Father are open to receive them. Do you believe that? Evidently, Abram believes this. He knows that God is a God who receives sinners at the altar. Remember that the word altar literally means place of slaughter, place of sacrifice. Abram is wanting to get back to this altar in order to offer sacrifice to God. He knows that if he wants to succeed in reconnecting with God, he must do so through blood sacrifice. But he knows that through blood sacrifice, God will receive him. What does Abram do once he arrives at this altar? The text tells us at the end of verse four, and there he called on the name of of the Lord. This is what saved people do. He calls on Jehovah's name in prayer and he worships God. Keep in mind that Sarah is with him. Everyone else that went down to Egypt is with him. They were all with him. They saw him fail. And here they see him after his failure kneeling in prayer before this altar of blood sacrifice and calling on the name of the Lord on the other side of his failure. You men who are dads or husbands, you may have failed and your wife and your children may have seen you fail. But do they see you returning to the altar? And calling upon the name of the Lord in humility and in prayer and worship through the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Abram was not a perfect husband. He was not a perfect man. 
but he was a man who returned to the altar of blood sacrifice after his sins, after his failures. And he never, ever stopped calling on the name of the Lord. This is a beautiful scene of repentance and restoration and humility. On the other side of Abram's failure, from the little we know so far in the text, this is a beautiful, wonderful scene, a wonderful moment, but all is not well. There's a problem that is brewing between Abram and Lot, and it is because of all the prosperity that they were experiencing. This brings us to the third development in the story of Abram's faith and flourishing on the other side of his failure in Egypt. And that is this, Abram experiences strife with Lot because their possessions were so many. He experiences strife with Lot because their possessions were so many. Maybe I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. Maybe some of you, like you're here worshiping the Lord and it's all great, but you may have even gotten in an argument at the house this morning or on the car or in the car. I hope you're not on the car as you're coming to church, but in the car on your way to church this morning, there may be strife in the car or in your house when you go home. And sometimes you may experience that and just go, man, what's so wrong with my life? I wish I could be like these saints of old. Well, Abram is having this incredible scene of worship and connection with God. And we will see that there's strife that shows up, family strife that shows up. This is so real and true to our experience. Abram experiences strife with Lot because their possessions were so many. Notice the problems that are identified here. First of all, we already know that Abram was rich or heavy with livestock and silver and gold. But here in verse five, we read the following. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. There was so much livestock that needed to graze that the land itself was not able to provide sufficient feeding for all of them to be together in one place. And as a result of the insufficiency of the land to sustain them while they were together, the inevitable happens. Verse 7 tells us the following. Look at this, verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The word strife speaks of fighting and bickering involving formal complaints and counter complaints which are left unresolved and keep getting worse. Obviously, they're fighting over grazing rights and watering holes. To make matters stickier, verse 7 also says, Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. This means that it was not just Abram's men and Lot's men fighting for land and water for their livestock, to feed at, but there were other people who were living there too, who also lived off the land, making the choices of fields and water available to Abram and Lot more limited because they had to share it with people who actually lived there. 
In addition, these pagan Canaanites and Perizzites had a front row seat to observe the strife between Abram's men and Lot's men. Abram and Lot and their people were Jehovah worshipers, and yet here they are bickering with each other over grazing rights and access to water. As one writer says, it was bad enough for brethren to disagree, but to fall out, especially over material things in the presence of the ungodly, was worse. I am sure the Canaanites and the Perizzites were unimpressed by the religion of these Jehovah worshipers as they fought with one another. And the same is true today, is it not? I love what J. Vernon McGee says about this. He says, when people outside the church see Christians fighting with each other, their thought is, if that's Christianity, I don't want any part of it. I can get a fight outside. I don't need to join a church to get a fight. Clearly, this is a problem that needs to be addressed. So how does Abram address this problem? Does he ignore it and hope that it will go away? Does he try to solve it in a conniving way that guarantees his own advantage like he did down in Egypt at the end of chapter 12? This brings us to the next development in the story of Abram's faith and flourishing after his failure in Egypt. Let's word it this way. Trusting Jehovah, Abram sacrificially proposes a solution to Lot. Trusting Jehovah, Abram sacrificially proposes a solution to Lot. Look at verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Might want to underline the word please and brothers. Notice that he says please. His use of the word please denotes urgency, but also tenderness. Why does Abram not want strife? Look what he says, for we are brothers. Which is interesting that he would say this. Abram is actually Lot's uncle. But here he calls them brothers, thereby treating his orphaned nephew, Lot, as an equal. This shows remarkable humility on Abram's part. Notice Abram's proposed solution to Lot, verse 9 He says, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. This is a stunning offer of a solution. Abram is deferring to Lot and giving him essentially first choice here. Pick what you want, Lot. Pick the direction that you want to go. Pick the land that you want to live in, and I'll go in the other direction. I'll take whatever you don't pick. What's stunning about this is that Abram actually has four advantages. You might want to jot these down over Lot in this situation, and he doesn't use any of the advantages. Number one, Abram is the older of the two. So you can write down the word age. He's the older of the two, so he outranks Lot in age. A second advantage, you can write the word wealth. Abram 
is the more wealthy of the two. So he outranks Lot in wealth and in power. Number three, he is Lot's uncle. So he outranks Lot in his position in the family. And a fourth advantage is Abram is the one God actually made the promise of land to, not Lot. Given these four advantages, Abram has every right to pull rank on Lot and say, there's conflict, there's strife, I'm going to solve this. Here's my solution. I am choosing this land over here, and you will take the land I don't choose. God promised me this whole land anyway, Lot, so I am entitled to lay claim to what I want first, and then you take what I don't choose. If Abram had done this, no one would have ever found fault with him for this. And yet, in spite of Abram's fourfold advantage position, he refuses to assert these advantages. Instead, he literally sets all of them aside and he treats Lot as a brother and actually lowers himself beneath Lot and gives away the advantage to Lot giving Lot the right to choose the land that he wanted first. As one writer says, this is a case where the social superior humbles himself before the inferior to preserve peace, thereby proving himself the spiritually superior. You measure the greatness of a person's soul by how they handle conflict And do they assert their rights and advantages? Or are they willing to lay them aside for the sake of peace? Clearly, Abram cares enough about Lot to be willing to sacrifice all of these advantages in order to make peace. And clearly, Abram is totally trusting God with whatever the outcome might be as a result of Lot's choice. It seems that Abram has learned a lot from his time in Egypt, right? And he seems totally confident that, hey, God's going to take care of me. No matter what happens, no matter what Lot chooses, God, Jehovah, is going to take care of me. Looking at how different Abram is in this chapter, chapter 13, from the way he was in the second half of chapter 12 down in Egypt, one writer says, what a change from the calculating, self-serving schemer that he was in Egypt. Do you guys see the difference? You might hear this and read this and say, man, I would never lower myself and give away such advantages in a conflict situation like this. It might cause me to lose out on getting what's coming to me. Well, if you think that way, it's because you have a small view of God. And it may just be why your conflicts don't ever get resolved. Learn from Abram's example here. Abram trusted God and humbled himself in this conflict situation. His faith operated in the midst of conflict. And God took care of him pretty well, right? And he will do the same for you if you do the same. Anyway, so what happens? How does this play out? This brings us to the next development in the story of Abram's flourishing and faith 
after his failure in Egypt, and that is Lot chooses for himself the lush valley of the Jordan. Lot chooses for himself the lush valley of the Jordan. You notice in the passage that Lot does not hear Abram say what he says and then say, no, Abram, I'm not going to let you do this. You're my uncle. You choose first and then I'll choose second. No, Lot basically says, wow, I like your plan, Abram. And so verse 10 reads, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan. Obviously, they were at some elevated spot and Lot was able to look upon all of the valley of the Jordan, which is likely the likely area he's looking at is the area just north of the Dead Sea. You see the red circle on the map? Uh, You see the yellow? Can you guys see that? That's about where Abram and Lot are standing. And Lot is looking down and seeing this round shaped valley just north of the Dead Sea, and he likes what he sees. As Lot looks over the Jordan Valley, it says in verse 10, he saw that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which was in the area. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. Moses is reminding us that this well-watered, beautiful condition was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in this area. This is Moses assuring his readers that if you go there and look at this valley today, it doesn't look anything like it did in this moment as Lot was looking down from the heights upon this lush valley in his day. At this point in time, in Lot's day, Moses is telling us that this valley was like the garden of the Lord. In other words, it was like the garden of Eden. That's pretty high praise. The text also says that it was like the land of Egypt, which was also lush and fertile due to the Nile River. This area was beautiful and lush like this as you go to Zoar, the passage says, which was a city somewhere near this area of the Jordan Valley. So look at what Lot does. He sees the beauty of this area. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. The extra words for himself, he chose for himself, denotes a touch of selfishness here. Lot is saying this land that I choose will be mine, Abram, and you can live anywhere but here. Having made this choice, the text tells us that Lot took off and he journeyed eastward toward this valley of the Jordan. Some commentators criticize Lot for his choice here. Some commentators defend him, at least to some degree, reminding us that Lot probably had little idea of the wickedness of this area. And certainly he had no guess that this area would receive the judgment of God that will be falling upon it, I believe, in Genesis 19. But either way, what is clear is that Lot is being led by his eyes only. Instead of asking the Lord to guide him, he is totally trusting his eyeballs to guide him. He's choosing what his eyes are telling him is the most attractive option. 
He is only in this moment thinking of the best place to raise cattle, not the best place to raise kids. Little does he know that he will eventually be fleeing Sodom for his life with his wife and his kids. What happens to Lot should serve as a lesson to all of us. And the lesson is you cannot trust your eyes. So do not walk by sight, walk by faith. Now, I know some of you may hear that and say, man, walking by sight sounds smart. Going by what we see, that's solid rather than walking by faith. But the problem is if you walk by sight, here's the hang up with that. You can't see everything. You just can't. You can't see the future. You can only see the present. And even as you look at things as they are in the present, you don't see everything. So you can either walk by your own limited sight or you can walk by faith in the God who sees everything and who can tend to your happiness far better than you can. Anyway, look at the outcome of this transaction between Abram and Lot. And this brings us to the sixth development in the story of Abram's faith and flourishing on the other side of his failure in Egypt. And that is Abram settles in Canaan and Lot settles as far as Sodom. The first outcome is stated in verse 11. It says, thus they separated from each other. And the second outcome is in verse 12, which tells us that Abram settled in the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. While Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Notice that verse 12 is making a distinction between the cities of the valley where Lot is moving to and the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, implying that where Lot was settling was outside, in all likelihood, the promised land. In fact, somewhat ominously, the text tells us that Lot moved his tents as far as Sodom. Keep in mind that lots, he's got a lot of people, a huge camp that's with him and livestock. And his settlement is a huge settlement of many tents. And the point here is that the scope of Lot's encampment extended as far as Sodom. It's here that we are given some information about the men of Sodom. In verse 13, the text says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against Jehovah. The language here is about as strong as you'll find anywhere in scripture. To be a sinner is something that every human being is on this side of the fall. But to be wicked, just the word wicked alone indicates a special kind of sinfulness, which demonstrates a fierce, rebellious resolve in evil. But then to be described as wicked exceedingly is about as bad as any human being could ever be described and is ever described on the pages of Scripture. As one writer says, this is a rare phrase that suggests that they, the men of Sodom, were living at a level lower than normal sinners. Moses' point in giving us this information right now in the text is to let us know that Lot has chosen a very bad area to live in. So yes, Sodom and the surrounding area were incredibly lush and beautiful, 
Yet there was wickedness in this place of tremendous beauty. As John Calvin says, Lot, when he fancied he was living in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Teaching again that you cannot trust your eyeballs. You cannot walk by sight. You must walk by faith in the God who sees everything. We'll learn more about Lot and his involvement with Sodom in later chapters. But for now, the focus is on Abram and Abram's point of view. So at this point, Lot has left Abram. And now Lot and all of his herdsmen are gone. Abram is left alone and probably feeling the sting of this separation, the breaking or at least the distancing of this relationship that he had grown accustomed to having in his life. And so what happens next? This brings us to the next development in the story of Abram's faith and flourishing after his failure in Egypt. And that is that Jehovah shows up and promises to give the land of Canaan to Abram and to his descendants. Notice in verse 14, when God speaks to Abram, the text says, now the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Abram no doubt was feeling sadness over the sting of Lot's departure and the loss of Lot's presence in his life. But in this moment of painful separation, God shows up and God speaks to Abram. And in addition to whatever specific things God will say to Abram, the mere fact that God shows up and speaks to Abram in this exact moment is God's way of saying to Abram, Abram, you lost your nephew, but you still have me. You lost your nephew, but you still have me. We have four children and when our four children leave Donna and me to go get married or go away to college or move away or whenever we're back in Indiana and we're saying goodbye to our family in Indiana, my wife will always get a certain look on her face and then begin to cry during those goodbyes. It hurts me to see that. And more times than not, in such moments, I will move towards her I will wrap my arms around her and say, you still got me. You still got me, honey. And she never seems comforted by that thought. But guys, I think that's exactly the vibe here in verse 14. Lot and all of his people have left Abram. And right in the moments after Lot's departure, God shows up. And makes his presence felt and speaks to Abram. And his speaking to Abram right now is a reminder to Abram that he still has Jehovah. Sometimes Christians are afraid to break off a relationship that maybe they know is wrong or unhealthy. They can't imagine life on the other side of that relationship being over. But this departure happens and God's right there for Abram right there, speaking to him, loving him with loving words. Look what God tells Abram to do. Verse 14, he says, now lift up your eyes 
and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Earlier, we saw that Lot had lifted up his eyes and took what he wanted. Here, God is telling Abram, you lift up your eyes and look in every direction from the place where you are standing. The word that is translated now, this is beautiful. Underline the word now, um, at least in the New American Standard. The word that is translated now is the Hebrew word for please. You would think that God, the God of the universe, should never need to say please to anybody. But here he says please to Abram in a beautifully tender way. There are actually only four times in the Old Testament where God ever says please to anybody. And interestingly, three out of those four times are God saying please to Abram. And here God is saying to Abram, please, please lift up your head. Look up, lift up your eyes, look in every direction. And then God says, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. This is now the third time that God has made promises to Abram in the text of Genesis, and it won't be his last. And one of the things you'll notice is that every time that God comes to Abram making promises to him, there's always overlap with things that God's already promised, but there's always something new that is inserted where the promise is being expanded, at least in Abram's understanding And here, God's adding two nuances to what he's promised before. First of all, God is saying to Abram, I will give it, the land, to you and to your descendants. Back in Genesis 12, 7, God promised that he would give the land to Abram's descendants. But here, God's emphasizing to Abram, it's also the land I'm giving to you, not just your descendants. This is yours, too. Secondly, in this promise, God is promising that he will give the land to Abram and his descendants forever. That's new. The land will not just be Abram's descendants for a time, but forever. And so God is speaking freshly to Abram and expanding on his promises to Abram in this moment of Abram experiencing the loss of Lot And I love how the story is evolving. As one writer says, what started as a situation of discontent and quarreling and friction has now turned into one of divine promise and blessing. And the same can be true for us if we handle our conflicts in a way that is humble and demonstrates trust in the Lord. The story continues. God has not finished promising. This brings us to the eighth development in the story of Abram's faith and flourishing after his failure in Egypt. And that is number eight, Jehovah promises to give Abram many descendants, many descendants. Verse 16, God says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. There's a real emphasis on descendants here. We see the word descendants in verse 15 and then twice here in verse 16. All three times, it's the Hebrew word for seed. God's saying, I will give the land to your seed, Abram, and I will make your seed, your descendants, as the dust of the earth. Remember, Abram is childless right now. He's married to a woman 
who is barren in her womb. And she, Sarah, is about 68 to 70 years old right now, has never had a child, and her womb is barren. Abram himself is anywhere from 78 to 80 years old right now. And guys, it'll be another 20 years before they have their first child or their child Isaac through Sarah. But here in this passage, God is promising. It's a crazy promise to Abram. You will have biological descendants and your descendants will be as impossible to count as is the grains of sand on earth. That's a new aspect of God's promise to Abram. This leads us to the ninth development in the story of Abram's faith and flourishing after his failure in Egypt. And that is this. Jehovah calls Abram to walk through the land that he is giving to him. Walk through the land. God doesn't just want Abram to look in every direction and see the land and give mental assent to the land that God is giving to him. God actually tells Abram, In verse 17, arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. God wants Abram to personally experience the fullness of what God is giving to him and to his descendants here. And God does the same with us. He does not just give us gospel blessings and tell us to look at them and to know what they are. He actually commands us to arise and to walk around and through the full length and breadth of his loving provision for us and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he has called us with. God literally is speaking to Abram as royalty here, and he's telling Abram, I want you, starting right now, to walk as such. Back in this day, it was a custom for a king to walk around a territory to demonstrate his sovereignty and possession of that territory. In ancient Egypt, when a new pharaoh would come to power, he would walk around the fortified walls of the capital city as a demonstration symbolically of his sovereignty over that city and that nation. And this is what God is calling Abram to do. God is saying to Abram, this land is yours. Now walk through this land like the royalty that you are. And God speaks the same way to us with regard to the gospel blessings that he has given to us in Christ. Ancient Jewish tradition tells us that Abram took this walk. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls was found a document. It's not inspired scripture, but there was found a document that literally details the particular path of Abram's walk and what he saw. The text of Genesis does not detail this walk for us, but it does tell us what Abram did after he made this walk. And this brings us to the final development in the story of Abram's flourishing and faith after his failure in Egypt. He doesn't just walk throughout the length and breadth of the land, he settles in it. Abram settles in the land and builds an altar to Jehovah. Verse 18 says, then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And with those words, the chapter comes to an end with Abram building an altar. Abram must have done a lot of traveling when it was all said and done. 
he ended up by the oaks of Mamre, which is just north of Hebron. Once he got there, the text tells us that he built an altar to the Lord. Let other people build their walls and their fortified cities. Abram, he built altars. Again, the word altar means place of sacrifice. So he's clearly building an altar where he can offer sacrifices to the Lord and worship God and to call upon his name. As one writer says, Abram here builds another altar. This was to be his home for some time now. And Abram wanted a place where his family and his servants would meet for the formal worship of God. And as the curtains close on chapter 13, Abram is settling down in the land of promise and he's building an altar and he's worshiping God. This is now actually the third time in Genesis 12 and 13 that Abram is said to build an altar. And it's the fourth altar scene that we see in these two chapters. In chapter 12, verse 7, he builds an altar in Shechem. In chapter 12, verse 8, he builds an altar between Bethel and Ai. And then here in chapter 13, and verse 4, Abram comes back to that altar between Bethel and Ai, and he calls on the name of the Lord. And now here in verse 18, Abram is building another altar, a place of sacrifice to worship God. One writer says the aroma of worship has enveloped this whole passage, Genesis 12 and 13, with the obvious exception of Abram's sojourn in Egypt. There's a lot for us to ponder here, and we've pondered some things as we've gone along this morning. Let me make just a few quick observations. We learn here in this story clearly that there is such a thing as flourishing in faith after failure. Be encouraged by this. Your failures are not the end of the story. If you repent and run back to the altar and call upon the name of the Lord there is flourishing and there is faith after failure. We also learn in this story that there's a huge difference that trusting God makes in our lives. Your trust of God shapes the kind of person you are in different circumstances. We learn in this story, trust God. He can love you better than you can love yourself. Abram is learning here that God can take better care of him than he can obviously take care of himself. Abram tried to take care of himself when he was down in Egypt, and that didn't work out real well for him. But here, Abram is letting God take care of him, and God takes amazing care of him, far better than Abram could take care of himself. My wife and I this week were reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision and in that prayer, one of the lines that the speaker is saying to God are these words, thou hast attended to our happiness more than we can do. That's what Abram is learning. He's learning that he doesn't have to manipulate and deceive and disobey God in order to gain some advantage or some blessing. In fact, he can freely give up his advantages and trust God and know that God will take care of him far better than Abram could through his own devices. Our world today um, is really into self-love, right? But to us who know Jehovah, self-love is like humdrum and passe. 
because we have a God who we know can love us far better than we could ever love ourselves. Abram is learning that. We see the difference here that trusting God makes in the kind of person that Abram is in these various circumstances. In the second half of chapter 12, Abram fails to trust God and his lack of trust turns Abram into a small-minded and greedy man. In chapter 13, today he's trusting God and his trust turns him into a big-hearted and generous man. As one writer says, Abram in Egypt descended to a small shriveled heart, but Abram back in Canaan elevated to a great magnanimous heart. And the heart difference, listen to this, guys, the heart difference in this man of faith depended on whether he trusted or distrusted God's word. The same is true for us. There are two versions of you and me. There's the version of us when we're trusting God. And there's the version of us when we are not trusting God. Mark those differences. And trust God. When you don't trust God, you are a danger to yourself and to everyone around you. When you're trusting God, your heart is expanded by that trust. And you are far more generous and willing to sacrifice and surrender. Like we see with Abram. Finally, we learn here in this story the value of coming to the altar after you fail. We learn in this story that after we fail, we need to make a beeline to the altar of sacrifice like Abram did. Sometimes after we fail, we think that God doesn't really want to see us at the altar. Sometimes we think, well, I I should only come to the altar after I've improved my performance for a few days. Then God will be happy to see me. Sometimes we think, I dare not go to the altar now because I should only come to the altar with my best. But did you know that you actually honor God when you come to his altar with your worst? When you come to him with your sins? Did you know that God delights in those who come to his altar with their sins and cry out to him in repentance and cling to his mercy? Remember that altar means place of slaughter, place of sacrifice, which means that our altar today is the cross of Jesus Christ who died and shed his blood so that we can have our sins forgiven on the other side of our failures. Please know, dear believer, no matter how badly you have failed, you can always come back to that place of sacrifice, the cross of Christ, and experience God's grace, God's forgiveness, and God's healing at the foot of the cross. If you're here today and you've never come to Jesus Christ and cried out to him for salvation and believed in him as your Lord and Savior and as your atonement through his shed blood, I urge you to come to this altar, the cross of Christ today, and believe in him. And if you are a believer in Jesus and you have sinned and failed royally, make a beeline to the foot of the cross and do this beautiful thing called repentance. Repent, confess your sins, cling to God's mercy and experience his grace there. There is flourishing and there is faith on the other side. A failure. Let's pray together.
Lord, you, um, you're good to give us narratives like this. What we see in Genesis 13. To give us heroes like this who are of like passions as we are and who in one moment they're trusting in another moment they're not. In one moment they're soaring and another moment they're stumbling. And yet, probably the greatest example in all of the life of Abraham that we glean from him was he was a man of faith. Not just a faith that always kept him from failing, but a faith that brought him back to the altar every time he failed. And may we do the same, Lord, knowing that you are a God who receives sinners. You are delighted to receive us into your presence. When we have nothing to bring you but our sins, you happily forgive because you came into the world to save sinners. We thank you, Lord, for the God that you are and for the truths that you have put before us this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you. We ask that you would receive these funds and do much with every penny that is given to you in this offering this morning. For the spread of the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ here in this community and around the world. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.